This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is episode six in a 10-part audio series on Elizabeth Taylor. We are examining her life through the frame of the first influencer. Our focus is Elizabeth's voice, the authenticity of it, the things she lived through that shaped and developed it, the power of it to affect the lives of others. Because our series is about her voice, recordings of Elizabeth in her own words have opened each episode introducing our themes and launching us into the storyline. This episode is different. It is an account of the moment that a global epidemic unexpectedly emerged and mass suffering and death washed through Elizabeth's life. HIV and AIDS. Everything you've heard about Elizabeth Taylor so far can be placed in the time before HIV AIDS. And everything you'll hear in episodes to come is the aftertimes. From this moment, through her passing, to this day and beyond, every corner of Elizabeth's legacy, every effort of her voice, was driven by her mission to alleviate the spread of HIV and end the suffering and death from AIDS. To understand why HIV-AIDS became the single organizing principle for Elizabeth's voice, We will do our best to honestly take you through what Elizabeth went through in that moment, what she saw, what she felt. So many of you listening were born after HIV first ravaged its way through thousands of souls, stealing their lives. The events and emotions of that era are critical to grasp, to pass through this inflection point in Elizabeth's story. For those of you old enough to remember the time and especially those of you who suffered loss during the early years of HIV and AIDS. This episode is for you. The pain and grief in some of the testimony you are about to hear is powerful. If you're driving, at work, or in a home or social setting where your own vulnerability might put you in a compromising situation, please wait until you can find a proper moment to listen. We want you to be safe. I'm Katy Perry, and this is Elizabeth I. This is Chapter 6, War. It's mysterious, it's deadly, and it's baffling medical science. Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. Federal health officials consider it an epidemic, yet you rarely hear a thing about it. Bobby Campbell is fighting for his life, one of a rapidly growing group whose battle has fascinated and frightened modern medicine. He has Kaposi sarcoma, a deadly skin cancer that first appeared on the bottom of his feet as spots the size of a quarter. There is a one in five chance a victim will die within the first year of the illness. Yeah, this is where it's hard to talk without crying. Um, So what was it like? It was it was scary it was tragic kids in their 20s and 30s looked like they were 90 and then they would die everybody that got sick died there were no there was there were probably two exceptions that i know of it was 
terrifying. We were terrified. Some of the gay community was not terrified. They were in denial, just like all the heterosexual community was in denial. Uh, the media, it was, there was panic. The media sensationalized everything. A mystery disease known as the gay plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. That today from the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, topping the list of likely victims are male homosexuals who have many partners and drug users who inject themselves with needles. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome, or AIDS, started as an exclusively gay disease. This depression of the immune system can lead to a rare form of cancer, Kaposi's sarcoma, which shows up as those purplish spots. Federal health officials say as many as one million Americans may have been infected with the AIDS virus and more than 12,000 are expected to develop the deadly disease next year. Yeah, my name is Bill Meisenheimer. My first friend died in 1982 and I became terrified. My friends became terrified. But I channeled my fear into very active involvement in the fight against AIDS. I left my very successful career at Xerox. And I, I was, became the volunteer finance director at APLA. I quickly became their first paid executive director, lost my home to foreclosure, but didn't give it a second thought because I knew that's what I had to do. I worked with uh, Elizabeth Taylor running her foundation, Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, and I worked with her for uh, 26 years in total. And... Um, AIDS Project, we provided services for, for people with AIDS. When I started there, we had 34 clients. That's how early it was. And uh, no one would give us money. Very, very few people ever would even talk to us. Media wouldn't come into our building. Uh, a, <laughs> people, in, people in the hospital, people with AIDS, the mailman, some mailmen wouldn't deliver their mail. The, in the hospital, the uh, attendants wouldn't bring food into their room. Families kicked them out all the time. Uh, hospitals would discharge people to our front door with no place to go. There were, there were no hotels for people that would take people. We found one hotel in Silver Lake that would take people with AIDS. Um, and you didn't have time to grieve because there was just one case after another, after another, after another that needed help. And there was no, there was no hope for them to be alive and to have somebody come to you and ask you to save their life. Or when, or when somebody would, when we would go to find them, they would be laying in their own feces. It was horrible. It was awful. It was just awful. And, you know, unless you were there, nobody, nobody. I mean, all the, all of us, all of us that were there, this was what we did all the time. And for, for people to beg you to save your life, you're sitting there going, oh, my God, there's nothing I can do. And boy, it sure makes you feel like know what a doctor is when a doctor is dealing with someone who's terminal. If you're 
shopping, while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As early as 1982, there were 853 recorded American deaths from AIDS. From the White House press podium, Ronald Reagan's deputy press secretary, Larry Speaks, was the first administration official to be asked about the epidemic. Does the president have any reaction to the announcement from the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in 600, over 600 cases? Yeah, over a third of them are done. It's known as gay plague. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing. That, uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wondered if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Do you? You didn't answer my question. How do you know? Does the president, in other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke? No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. You, what, does the president, we, does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry? I don't think so. I don't think there's been Nobody any, knows. there's been no, no personal no, experience here, Lester. No, I mean, I thought you were keeping Doctor, I checked thoroughly with Dr. Ruge this morning and he's had no, uh, <laughs> no patients he, he suffered from AIDS or whatever it is. The president doesn't have gay plague, is that what you're saying or what? No, didn't say that. Didn't say that. We had one social worker at the time, and she would, she came and told me that this guy, as he was dying, he was screaming not to die. And these were people in their 20s and 30s. So that's pretty much what it was like. And people were terrified. You would have people to your house. And uh, I'll tell you, I lived with my roommate at the time. We had, a, we had people over, and, you know, there were people with AIDS. And he was so paranoid that he... Soaked all the the silverware in bleach and <laughs> ruined it. It was it was so funny, but that's that's what it was like. But again, so many people were in denial, especially in the gay community. They only believed it. They thought it was a a drug user's disease, and they thought it was a party boy disease, and they thought it was a everybody else's problem until it hit home. That's when they really started to change their behavior. But it took a while. It took a year. It took two years. In the eyes of the world, it was a gay disease. I used to have people to my house to do writing letter campaign. We would write letters to the government, you know, telling them how horrible it's going to be, and asking for funding and all that stuff. I still have all those, um, and uh, that's how I got involved. I thought it's better to act as opposed to just sit and be afraid. I was with six people who. I know 
would have infected me because I know how it's transmitted and I still test negative. I'm one of the few, there are some people from Northern Europe that have a defective, it's called a CCR5 receptor and the virus can't hook onto it. So I should be dead. I should have been dead long ago. It was very, very hard. Just what is wrong with Rock Hudson? Tonight, the 59-year-old actor remains in a Paris hospital undergoing tests, but the nature of his illness has become clouded in mystery and confusion. Yesterday, it was reported that Hudson had liver cancer and possibly AIDS, but today, the hospital denied the cancer story and said nothing about the AIDS rumor. A spokesman just said Hudson was tired. Many reports over the years credited Rock Hudson's suffering and death from AIDS as the motivating factor behind Elizabeth's initial involvement. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what happened in the 80s, why Elizabeth got involved. And she was very, very clear that she did not get involved primarily because of Rock Hudson. I've been able to track a little bit more history going earlier. And, you know, Elizabeth was aware of what was happening. I think the first time somebody had brought it up to her was um, her doctor, Michael Roth, who also was seeing, you know, guys who had HIV, gay men. And he wanted her to help, but it was really early, like 1981. And I think that's what's important to remember, and I'm, I'm still having a hard time getting my head around this, is at that time, they didn't know what AIDS was good. They didn't know what AIDS was going to become. It's easy to look back and it's to say, oh my God, look, what, look how Elizabeth Taylor drew all this attention to the AIDS crisis when no one else would. But at the time, they weren't thinking about it that way. I mean, Elizabeth knew her value. She knew her commodity and she knew she could get attention for AIDS. But Elizabeth, had to do something because these people were dying. It was just because people were dying and, and no one was helping. You know, the government wasn't doing anything. The people in her world weren't doing anything. And she realized that she could do something. And so she decided to do it. But I know from my experience with her that she couldn't stand to see people in pain. And she was always about the marginalized. I mean, she's stuck with helping the most marginalized people. She was on the side of the underdog. And at the time, Elizabeth was involved, but she wasn't public about it. She was doing, she was sitting at home getting furious that nobody was doing anything. And then when she got involved, it's like, you know, the biggest voice in the world to help us. The reason I was so motivated to become so involved was not because Rock Hudson, as so many people think, was sick. I didn't even know then that he was sick with AIDS. No one knew. I was just, I think like many people, getting very angry at the lack of response at what was happening. It was clearly becoming an epidemic. And that really angered me. I thought, what is the matter with this country? What is the matter with this world? It's happening right under our noses. Then I thought, wait a minute. It's happening right under my nose. Why am I not doing anything? Well, first of all, Elizabeth is a person that really, as she says, these are her words, doesn't give a shit about what people think about her, right? So she wasn't afraid, but 
everybody tries to pin it down to one thing. And I worked with Elizabeth for 26 years. There wasn't one thing. There wasn't one person that she lost. She was just sitting there getting furious that nobody would do anything about this. And that's when she got involved. Elizabeth's first public involvement with HIV AIDS was as chairwoman for the first Commitment to Life fundraiser in 1985. We were doing a fundraiser. We, uh, we had a board member at APLA named Peter Scott, and he decided we need to do a fundraiser. He was, listen, I was, in, I was not in the nonprofit world. I was not in the gay world. I didn't have a clue what's going on, right? I mean, I learned very quickly, but I didn't know how to organize a, a dinner. Well, we just, he decided we wanted to do a dinner called Commitment to Life. And so we decided that who else could do this for us? Let's see, there are three people, Queen Elizabeth, the Pope, and Elizabeth Taylor. And we knew somebody who knew Elizabeth Taylor. So we, we pursued that avenue. We called Michael Roth, and uh, he connected us with Shen Sam. Shen Sam was her publicist and best friend, by the way. We had a meeting. There were seven of us and Shen and I, Shen and I fell in love immediately with each other. And right after that, I wrote a letter to Elizabeth, the first letter to Elizabeth that asked her to participate in it. And she said yes. But the interesting story, there's a very interesting story about this because she wanted to do her due diligence and bet us, right? So she, she uh, told me that she would do it, but she wanted something in writing from Wallace Annenberg to prove that it was legit. So I had to go to Wallace Annenberg's house, get a, a note from her saying that it was real and that she was participating. And, and when Elizabeth got that, she signed on. And then Shen really dove in. Shen worked her butt off to make this thing a success. And, and Elizabeth then started because she had something to focus on in terms of raising money. and. Um, she got a lot of no's. Elizabeth had agreed to host the first major AIDS fundraiser in the United States. It's possible that it was in the world, but I just, I just know for, for sure that it was in the U.S. And uh, AIDS Project Los Angeles was having a hard time selling tickets to a fundraiser they were having. So they asked Elizabeth and she basically said she would do it, but she wasn't going to just do it and as like a figurehead or, you know, the host. She wanted to get involved and, and put it together. And so she went to work. And Shen, Sam, moved to Los Angeles during this planning period, had an office at the Mondrian, and was, was critical in making that event the success that it was. But Elizabeth was making all these phone calls and she was getting people saying no to her. And that's not something that usually happened with Elizabeth. And people were turning against her. And, you know, and she said she got hangups. She said she got death threats. Some major, major people were not willing to help. And she was appalled that the entertainment community you know, which was her community, of all people, would not have sensitivity to gay men dying of AIDS with the set designers and the hairdressers and all the creative positions that gay men took. And Hollywood didn't care. Elizabeth hearing no, that she can't do something, is the best way to get her to do it. And she committed herself. She has a way to uh, persuade people. She was very persuasive. 
if, if you just think about it, who's going to say no to Elizabeth Taylor, right? Very few. The no's that she got, I think, just really upset her. Oh, it was a risky proposition at the time because of the nature of the illness um, and the stigma associated with it, which she hated. She hated that. That's how she did it. She just persisted. We wound up with about probably 20 people, 20 honorary co-chairs that were mainly celebrities. And most of those were due to her and her calling them and convincing them to do it. In terms of the Rock Hudson situation, she did not know he was sick. But the interesting thing is, is that Sammy Davis Jr. wound up performing at the first Commitment to Life dinner. And Frank Sinatra wound up being on the Entertainment Support Committee. So they eventually came around. Frank Sinatra didn't do more than that, though. But he did put his name on it, ultimately. But she was getting a lot of notes. The first time I ever met her, I was at the Mondrian Hotel. And Shan was there because she had parked herself there for five months to work on this event. And she lived in New York. And so we were there and Elizabeth called me because this was in, that was in June that I sent her the letter, June of 85. And then in July, when Rock Hudson announced he was sick, the first time I ever talked to Elizabeth was on the phone. She called me. She wanted me to put her in touch with Rock Hudson's doctor. And it was Michael Gottlieb. He was on our board. I'd known him for a couple of years and I did. But I got to tell you, when he announced his illness, we, we had an event scheduled at the Century Plaza. It held 1,700 people. And we decided to move it to the Bonaventure because after Rock Hudson put a face on this, Hollywood was dying to get in. We moved it to the Bonaventure with 2,500 seats, sold out, and turned away 800 people. And I'm talking about 800 Hollywood people. He had a major influence on that. And, you know, she was dear to him. At the very first fundraising event that Elizabeth ever went to, it was a pre-sale party for Commitment to Life. And we went there on a Sunday afternoon. I picked her up at, at her house and took her in my brown Honda to this event. She was brilliant at the event. But then I took her to see Michael Gottlieb. I took her to UCLA again in my brown Honda with Roger Wall following us. And I kept thinking, well, the paparazzi isn't coming, but who would believe she's in a brown Honda, right? So anyway, I took her around back and Michael took her up to see Rock Hudson. That was the first time she had ever seen him. Oh, well, she was just all the more committed. She had had friends that were affected for sure. But after that, I mean, she was just more committed than ever. Once Elizabeth's commitment and Rock Hudson's illness and death had mobilized their industry, Elizabeth needed a vehicle with a mission in order to keep raising funds. Epidemics that fuel mass death don't just disappear. Money and action on a federal level are needed if there is any hope of alleviating human suffering. Despite the support of friends and colleagues, it was clear to Elizabeth, Bill, and everyone else involved with raising AIDS awareness and getting help to patients, in terms of our government, they were on their own. Uh, Michael Gottlieb started a foundation called the National AIDS Research Foundation, which was a, a new foundation that really never did anything except merge with AIDS Medical Foundation in New York to form AMFAR. So Michael came to me and asked me if I would leave APLA and become the director of NARF, National AIDS Research Foundation, and I agreed to because I was so burned out with 
doing direct services and being so close to people. Um, so we decided, I mean, Elizabeth was clearly interested. So there one night again, I can't believe this, but it was Shen, you know, Shen and I were very close. She said, well, come pick us up. And we went to dinner at a cafe called Cafe San Michel in San Monica. And I picked Shen and Elizabeth up in my brown Honda. And we went there and we were talking about bringing her onto the board of National AIDS Research Foundation. I was emotional then and I was crying. And, and I said, I told her, I said, Elizabeth, this is so hard. It's so hard. And she grabbed my arm and she said, please let me help. I've been through some tough stuff in her, in her own life. So that's how she got involved with us. Elizabeth Taylor was a unique individual. She was a, a, a person that most everybody went to her for everything. She never went to anybody to get something done. They came to her to get something and for her to get something done. So at the time, there was really nothing for her to do except raise money. And she didn't have a focus to raise money prior to that because there were she had to have an organization to do it. You just can't raise money and let it sit. She started raising money for NARF. And I got to tell you that she wrote a fundraising letter on Rock Hudson's stationery and signed it. I have the original. It is so cool. I can't believe it. It asked for money to be donated to the Rock Hudson AIDS Foundation, which was then going to be given to AMFAR. And ultimately it was. So her, her main focus in the beginning was raising money. And so that's how she focused her energies in the beginning. Later on, she had, oh, she had, she got very involved in direct services and medical care and IV drug use had, uh, prevention and education and all of those things that she did with, uh, with her own foundation. But that started it. And then she was just committed forever. And she was, she was willing to raise money no matter what she had to do. And she, raised, she, she was responsible for raising millions and millions of dollars, millions of dollars. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. It was murderously difficult. No one wanted to be involved. No one wanted to talk about it. No one wanted to lend their names. No one wanted to come and entertain. No one wanted to buy a ticket. And no one was doing anything. And I thought, well, hell, I'm guilty of doing exactly the same thing that everybody else is doing. I'm, I'm angry, but I'm not doing anything. So I thought maybe for once I could use my name, my fame, in a constructive way and maybe make it heard above that dreadful silence. 
Elizabeth's voice and efforts for AMFAR were ceaseless. But there's only so much private fundraising can accomplish when it comes to an epidemic. These are national and global health issues. Detection, treatment, control and prevention, and awareness campaigns involving private and public healthcare systems, research and development, and the mobilization of medications and care. Elizabeth was smart. The people around her in this battle were as well. Everyone knew that to really battle this disease, the government would need to be involved. Federal support from the president and Congress was necessary. These were American citizens that were suffering and dying. How could they fail to act? Well, they did. Because the disease that was deemed the gay plague was too taboo to touch. Especially for the all-American cowboy film actor turned president, Ronald Reagan. It took until 1985 and nearly 6,000 recorded American deaths before Ronald Reagan would say the word AIDS for the first time in public. In the next two years, the number of deaths would quadruple. Still, not one dime from Congress, from our government. Instead of an official policy from President Reagan, he slashed the budgets of the CDC and squeezed the nation's main backer of biomedical research, the NIH. There was not even a word of condolence from the B-film actor. Enter movie star and global icon, Elizabeth Taylor. But I do know what happened prior to the event. She wrote to Nancy Reagan, who she was personally close with, a couple of times and got notes, got no answer. People speaking about it in, in whispers and the press in many ways covering it in a way that is flippant or can be seen as somewhat disrespectful um, and not necessarily taking it seriously. And you see that even in the highest levels of government. Even the president of the United States wasn't willing to say the word publicly, and it took years for there to be any official policy pronouncements, and that was in large part due to Elizabeth's doggedness and <laughs> trying to use her, her connections and her former acquaintance and friendship with the Reagans to pressure them into taking it seriously and giving it attention and giving it the, the government, the funded resources that it needed. This included writing personal letters to them that you know we have responses to. I mean, we see examples in the archive that include correspondence from Elizabeth, both acting as a chairperson of, of AMFAR and requesting that the president and first lady attend as chairpersons to you know, an AIDS benefit. And we have multiple examples of these of Elizabeth trying over the years and of responses from the White House, some that are typed and formal, but with an added handwritten personal note from Nancy Reagan, for example, one that says, so sorry, dear, hope you understand, can't do them all. But they didn't do any at that point. Until finally, we have in April of 87, what is essentially an acceptance letter saying that, okay, yes, the president will give a speech on AIDS at at this AMFAR on the Potomac dinner, which was 
almost two years of work. And that's not all she was doing. She was testifying to Congress. She was going to benefits. She was giving press conferences. She was doing as much as she could to educate herself and then also trying to educate the public. Uh, I think it's very important to raise people's awareness of AIDS, which is why we all wear the red ribbon. If you're aware of the problem, you can fight it with uh, knowledge and protection. And without protection, uh, the, um, the virus will keep spreading because we don't know how to protect ourselves. And our As an archivist, you see her in this context and you, as you've seen her in other contexts throughout her life. And so you see this glamorous movie star, but you also see now this really passionate, caring person who believes in this cause and is fighting for people. And she's using her platform to try and educate those in the highest levels of government about a problem that they have the power to help mitigate. Finally, the Reagans gave in to Elizabeth and offered a first step. On May 31st, 1987, President Reagan gave the opening address for Anthar's fundraiser. Before either went on stage, Taylor sat with both the president and the first lady. There had been tension before, and the moment was building. I hope Elizabeth won't mind, but some years ago when I was doing a television show, General Electric Theater, part of my work required visiting the General Electric plants, 139 of them, and meeting all the employees. And knowing better than to have a canned speech for them, I would go and suggest that they might ask questions. And every place I went, the first question was, is Elizabeth Taylor really that pretty? And being the soul of honesty, I would say, you bet. The entire gay community, including me, blame him for most of our friends being dead because he, I went to the OMB one time and they told us that the word AIDS was not mentioned during his entire administration. They just didn't talk about it. So it was never a priority for him. And uh, he, he was there talking and he said something that was very unpopular about testing and he got booed. And he had never been booed before. His mouth dropped open. And, and Elizabeth actually came up and defended him. So she convinced him to do that. And then that was after the event that she stood up and actually sort of scolded the people for doing what they did. Thank you both so much for coming and for speaking and for saying what you have done. I know there's some people here that disagree, but I think what the president said is basically in concurrence with what we all hope and pray for. That is that there is a cure, that all of us do everything we can. And I think the president made that cure. I mean, that obvious. Uh, about the testing, there are differences of opinion. But I think it was gracious and wonderful. She was responsible for getting him to 
be there and talk about it. And some of the things he said made sense. So yeah, it was revolutionary in terms of her ability to get him to focus on it. The only thing is, I'm not, I didn't see a magic turnaround because of who he was and his party. I mean, there was a guy named Gary Bauer, and he was a, an extreme homophobe in his, in his administration. And he was, he just fought it all the time. Once Elizabeth went on stage, she was gracious and firm. We uncovered an alternate view of the event. The president and Nancy Reagan offstage, taking it all in, while Elizabeth took command. Here was a woman who sat atop the industry that produced Ronald Reagan, defending him to an audience with whom she was deeply committed and for whom Reagan had prolonged so much suffering. We know that part of this moment came from Elizabeth's inherent respect for the office of the president. Part of it was her grace. She defended Reagan despite how difficult his administration had made things for the Americans for whom she was fighting, despite her own years-long struggle just to get him at her side for 20 minutes. And one couldn't help but note, part of it was pure strategy. She could not afford to lose the influence with him now at this critical juncture in the war against AIDS. Elizabeth was in that moment redefining what it meant to be the biggest star in the world. The President of the United States stood in awe of Elizabeth's voice, of the purity of its power. And beyond that room, here's what happens when a genuine voice shows up and lends their passion and credibility to a worthy cause. The floodgates open. More and more, public figures were speaking up about the AIDS crisis. Thousands of citizens were finding their own way to raise awareness. By breaking the national silence on the HIV and AIDS epidemic, Elizabeth broke the stigma that was keeping others from adding their voice. I'm Pat Benatar. I'm a singer. I'm not an expert on AIDS. But you don't have to be to know the facts about AIDS. All this fear that surrounds AIDS is really not going to help. Hi, I'm Ed Harris. What would you do if one day somebody, a doctor maybe, told you you only had a few months or a year to live? Hi, I'm Andy Gibb. They didn't ask me to do this because I'm an expert on AIDS. Because you don't have to be to understand the facts. AIDS is preventable. I'm Ron Reagan. What would you do if one day somebody, a doctor maybe, told you you only had a few months or a year to live? Yesterday, hundreds, today, thousands, tomorrow, maybe millions, will have to change their ideas about time. AIDS is something we all need to know the truth about. Learn the facts. For more information about AIDS, call the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Fight the fear with the facts. On October 11th, 1987, four and a half months after Elizabeth finally succeeded in getting the president to acknowledge the crisis and say the word AIDS for the first time in his presidency, the first AIDS memorial quilt was laid on the grounds of the Washington Mall. They marched 10 and 12 abreast. Gays dying of AIDS pushed themselves in wheelchairs to the wide expanse of the mall for the huge demonstration. We must end the AIDS virus, the AIDS crisis, and stop death and give life a chance. While the protesters were marching and raising their voices outside the Capitol, Elizabeth was on a journey inside of it. Letters, meetings, testimony in the halls of Congress were a necessary part of the work. No event was too small to raise awareness or money. 
Elizabeth and Malcolm Forbes even visited a motorcycle event where Elizabeth arrived in a black leather jacket getting into the spirit of the crowd. The event raised just a few thousand dollars from the crowd, but the press it received was invaluable. This weekend, Taylor set out on the highway looking for adventure on the back of millionaire publisher Malcolm Forbes' motorcycle. Oh, my first ride, so I'm just gonna do it and hang on to him, and if I get really scared, that may be the end of both of us. <laughs> Taylor held on to Forbes for 100 miles to a biker's rally, where the Blue Star Motorcycle Club presented her with a check for $1,000 for AIDS research. So Malcolm invited Elizabeth to come to the 70th anniversary of Forbes. He presented her with a million dollar check for Amphar, which she was expressing surprise and happiness and gratitude. The truth is, she already knew about the check because it was her relationship with Malcolm and these kinds of relationships that she had developed in order to raise money for people with AIDS. Finally, in 1990, Congress passed the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act, called the Ryan White Care Act. The act was named in honor of an Indiana teenager who contracted HIV through an improperly screened blood transfusion. It was the largest federally funded program in the United States for people living with HIV AIDS. As a former senator's wife, Elizabeth knew well the slippery grease of the town. She knew the game when it came to money that was appropriated for HIV AIDS, making its rightful way alleviating the suffering of Americans affected by it. The Ryan White Care Act made federal funding available through contingency grants to states for low-income and uninsured people to be treated with a new anti-retroviral therapeutic drug called AZT. However, it also enabled states to adopt harsh criminal laws that regulated the conduct of HIV-positive individuals often leading to felony prosecution. They were throwaway people. They were throwaway people. No, but they were giving IV drugs and stuff. They didn't care about us. They just didn't. The laws were then, and in many cases continue to be, a form of bigotry and persecution, hiding inside a piece of legislation that could have and should have alleviated so much unnecessary suffering. Frustration with the needless roadblocks thrown in the path of help from our government was boiling over. And the power and influence that Elizabeth wielded with her public voice, using the press, would throw up its own obstacles right when covering the bigger issues that mattered the most. One example was at a 1992 press conference around a Cirque du Soleil benefit for AIDS awareness. A reporter implied Elizabeth was prioritizing AIDS patients over her own mother, who was sick at the time. Elizabeth could stand no more. She rose up and walked out on the press. I've seen my mother since I can't The reason I ask is because obviously it suggests your commitment to this court and you're prepared and willing to forego seeing your mom. Oh, that's really shitty. You know that? Let me go on to the next question, please. You're saying that I prefer this uh, press conference over my mother, is what you're saying. I'm sorry that you had to do that, and you were so uncompassionate. So I'm sorry the press conference is closed. All of this only reinforced Elizabeth's will to fight. She went right to Congress. Despite the noble purpose 
are programs supported by the Ryan White Care Act. And despite the ever-increasing caseload in our cities, funding for this bill has been, at best, totally inadequate and, at worst, non-existent. When the President signed this bill as law, a yearly spending level of $875 million was authorized. But in 1992, the appropriation was a meager $275 million. That's just one-third of the total. Two-thirds of that money authorized was not used to help people with AIDS. That Christmas, Roger Wall, who had worked for Elizabeth since 1984, killed himself through a mixture of pills and alcohol. After more than five years into the war, and having lost so many people that she knew, and thousands of others who weren't able to be saved in time, the complicated pain and horror of HIV-AIDS had made its way into Elizabeth's home. So Roger was Elizabeth's secretary. He had worked for Barry Manilow on the road and Tom Jones. And he went to work for Elizabeth thinking it was, she actually told him it was going to be a quiet desk job, which there's no quiet job working for Elizabeth Taylor. It got loud and busy very quickly, you know, when she started Amphar and the fragrance and all this stuff. So, so much was going on. And he really did not want to be traveling the way he was. So he left to become a real estate agent. And during that time, he and his partner tested for AIDS. And it turned out that he was HIV positive. Once he knew that he was HIV positive, he wanted to go back and be with Elizabeth and work for Elizabeth again. You know, she was so active in AIDS, had resources and tried to help him. You know, there were experimental drugs and different things that, you know, Elizabeth had inside information on. But, you know, inevitably he had, he had just seen so many friends and die of AIDS and he was afraid. Elizabeth and Larry had gone away for Christmas. This is sort of where I came around. It was towards the end of Roger's life, uh, but I was around, you know, I was helping with Christmas shopping and presents and all this stuff. And I sat with Roger and I could see how exhausted he was. So we sat together. I think we had a drink and we said goodbye. And he went off on Christmas break. So Georgette knocked on my door at 5.30 in the morning because we lived in the same apartment complex. I mean, it was just a story. It was a little storybook, you know, from the 30s or 20s kind of apartment complex. And I had a tiny little studio and she had a one bedroom. So she knocked on my door at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, Roger's partner, Bradley, had found him. He came home and, and ran to the bedroom and jumped on him. And Roger was dead. And so obviously he called Elizabeth. Roger was afraid of succumbing to AIDS, so he took his own life. And Elizabeth was devastated. She flew straight home and had to pick up the pieces. Elizabeth would call Roger's death one of the great losses of her life. And the proliferation of the disease was so profound that it had already found another person inside Elizabeth's home. 
this time in her family. I had the boys, her grandchildren, Caleb and Andrew, in like 83 and 84. And I was diagnosed, I think it was um, 86. And that was a, it was definitely a, a profound and deeply disturbing experience. And again, because there, there were just so many layers to all of it. Not only was there eventually a diagnosis, but I was married to her son and the mother to her grandchildren. I had behaviors that exposed me. And so it was a very difficult, you know, on a shame level, it was a lot to have to share with someone that had made such a safe place for me to flourish. And I mean, I think that the consequences of that shame really, I mean, I think that there, the, the, the toll was, was great. It was a lot to carry. And I, I just remember being so overwhelmed by how I was going to talk to her about it. But I was also so overwhelmed by, you know, there was just so much loneliness at the time. And who else would I have talked to but her? I, like, I definitely felt like I bit the hand that fed me. And to this day, like, I'll, I'll, I'll always have that the feeling. And she just, again, I think that's why I always say she made so much room for me. And she, um, in, by virtue of making that room, that, that, that's about forgiveness. She, she was able to, um, you know, maybe she didn't like what I did, but she sure made room to love me, to hear me, to be concerned, and to try to find ways to adequately support my needs at the time. It was obviously a tense, a very tense moment. She was trying to help me, but I was at a point in my life where I wasn't very receptive to help. So when I say again that she did for me in ways that she probably knows and in some ways that she'll never know, she really helped, I think, she really helped define a lot of my values today. There weren't a whole lot of people standing up for infected people. And so it, it was all very, very painful and um, no easy way to deliver the news. And then I think I just kind of jumped off the, the cliff at that point. So I think mom tried very hard to help provide a sense of stability and safety for me, even though um, I had made choices. I had, um, I had left Chris and I didn't have my own family to go to at that time. And I had been sober for quite some time and I decided not to be at that time. And so that, like all of that combined made it very difficult to help me. But that being said, I always felt that there was uh, a lifeline. And sometimes that lifeline, that's, you don't even see the other person on that line, but you just know they're there. 
The slow nature of medical research can be a frustrating process when people are dying all around you. Elizabeth accomplished a lot with AMFAR and knew that it was time to expand her focus. In 1991, Elizabeth established the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation with the mission of getting resources directly to people. Her statement, it's bad enough that people are dying of AIDS, but no one should die of ignorance. Education was key. Prevention, care, advocacy, availability of resources. This was the way to win the long war. She would go on to use her platform. The press spectacle over the life she lived, which she learned to harness in order to deliver a worthy message in ever more creative ways. Reaching more and more people, gracing big stages and small venues, educating through an abundance of love. Elizabeth's granddaughter, Naomi Wilding, was with Elizabeth for one of her more iconic moments on the journey. I was born in 1975, so in the 80s, I was starting to come of age, and her name really became connected to the HIV and AIDS crisis, which as I was coming of age and going into adolescence, you know, this, this very frightening thing for my generation of kids, our generation, um, was then also sort of person, personal to me. Um, so I felt that I had a personal responsibility because of her, her attachment to that. And then later, I think I was 16 when she invited me to go to the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. And that was a massive moment for me because I saw my grandmother the way that other people saw her. And it was quite life-changing. She was just, it was like, wow, she knew what she was doing. She was bossy and all of these thousands of people. And she's just like, you know, be quiet. I'm talking. I have something really important to say. If you have sex, every time you have sex, use a, a condom every single time. Straight sex, gay sex, bisexual sex, use a condom, whoever you are. And if you share drugs, don't share a needle. Tonight, we are here to raise money to help those living with AIDS. Tonight, we're here to send them a message that we care. And I won't give up because the world needs you to live. You see, we really love you. We really care. God bless. Bye. She was so good at what she did. I had such incredible admiration for her in that moment. You know, and I was 16, you know, it's not like usually you're like, I don't care what you think of me at this, at this stage. And here was this, this woman, you know, she said, what an incredible role model. You know, I think from that moment on, it was like anything she said, it's like, okay, I'll do it. You know, it was like this, her heart was out there, incredible compassion, but power behind it. And by the early 1990s, Elizabeth had gained powerful advocates who would go on to fight by her side with the same determination and efforts. When Whoopi Goldberg met Elizabeth, she said, Elizabeth asked her to help her with AIDS. And Whoopi said, Elizabeth, 
I've been working in AIDS for a long time in San Francisco. I, I'm from San Francisco, so I was there, you know, in the early days when people were dying. So I will help you with whatever you need. But I'm already on this bandwagon. And Elizabeth was thrilled. I mean, you know, she'd had so much rejection to have somebody who was so willing. In every precious life, looking back, one can often see the inflection point, the space between the before times and the after times, the thing that happens to break our lives into those two chapters. So often, it's a tragedy. Elizabeth had certainly weathered plenty of those throughout her life. Who could have imagined that there would be anything bigger than the painful moments that Elizabeth had already survived? And then, a national crisis, not of her making, landed on her doorstep, on all of our doorsteps. But Elizabeth's before times had built her house, her life, in such a way that she was not only compelled to act, she was prepared to step into the moment and affect cultural and political change on a global scale. She had influence and she used it. In the aftertimes to come, Elizabeth Taylor would never leave HIV and AIDS. And her voice, her creativity, her artistry would play a new role because of it. She would use all that was Elizabeth Taylor, the commodity, both the woman and the brand, to build an empire and ease our pain. How can we win the war? We must exhibit tenacious courage and boldness in our fight and be willing to pursue diverse and comprehensive approaches. We must continue our spirit of cooperation in our pursuit of a cure, prevention and treatment of this disease. On the next episode of Elizabeth I. She went on perfume tours and the places were mobbed just to see her. To have Elizabeth Taylor showing up at your local Macy's. People came from far and wide to see her. 10,000 people were showing up. It was crazy. Department stores that weren't set up for crowds like this. So many people and they found a way to line them up along the walls and people were just clamoring to see her. The lines out the store, you know, to get in just went down 34th Street. When you wear it, you feel very feminine. White diamonds are made to sparkle, and they make you sparkle. Elizabeth I is produced by Imperative Entertainment in association with House of Taylor and Kitty Purry Productions. Executive producers are Katy Perry, Jason Hoke, and Stephanie Koff. Elizabeth I is narrated by Katy Perry, produced by Jason Hoke, and written by Stephanie Koff. Sound engineering and audio editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. House of Taylor trustees are Quinn Tivy, Tim Mendelson, and Barbara Berkowitz. And its brand strategy consultant is Aaron Dawkins. Marshall Eskowitz and Kerry Schwartz of Sunset Boulevard serve as producing partners. 
and represent House of Taylor for Elizabeth Taylor licensing and content opportunities. Joshua Klebe wrote and composed the original score. Additional music provided by Reese Tivy. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to support the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, visit elizabethtaylor-aidsfoundation.org. And if you'd like to go deeper into the world of Elizabeth Taylor, keep an eye out for the first authorized biography about her life. Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon by number one New York Times bestselling author Kate Anderson Brower will be out on December 6. For more behind the scenes content, follow at Elizabeth Taylor, at Katy Perry, and at Imperative Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Love the series? Don't forget to tell your friends and leave a review. Thanks for listening.